Well hello and welcome to Rare Nautical Reads with me Chris Stanwell Major. In this episode we're reading Alain Collard's Around the World Alone and we're continuing with Chapter 3. Chapter 3 continued on course for the Cape of Good Hope. Tuesday, September 18th. I woke during the night to find Manareva lying to and falling astern at four or five knots. I immediately hauled down the mizzen and the mainsail, hoisted one of my big jennikers, and we were soon moving forward again. But that was not quite as easy as it sounds. There was a lift caught in the wrong place, and I had to do a trapeze number in order to free it. The days are getting somewhat long. Still, since passing Gibraltar, the winds have been from the northeast, and Manareva is flying along with her two white wings forward. No one, unless he has done it, can quite know what it means to handle two sails at once, each with an area of about 400 square feet. But I kept reminding myself that, after the Cape Horn adventure, there was the 1976 transatlantic coming up, and for that, I would have to be an expert. The future, I expect, belongs to the boats with the largest sails, so there is nothing to do but get ready to convert the rigging, and meanwhile to polish techniques with telescopic booms. 33 export from the Whitbread event is now 60 miles south of Madeira. This is the seventh night at sea for Manareva and me. I can see the lights of Alegranza on Fuerteventura, the most easterly of the Canary Islands. The trade winds are blowing, and I am being particularly cautious because of the darkness. Not that the darkness itself is especially hazardous, but the eastern rock lies near the course that I've charted for Manareva between the Canaries and the coast of Morocco. The lights of Alagranza are very faint. I can hardly make them out. They will be lost entirely by the time we reach the rock, although my imagination sees it right now in the shape of almost every wave. I went below from time to time to check the sounding apparatus, which, when I turn a switch, uses a stylus to trace the profile of the bottom. I watched the stylus move. Then, suddenly, my heart skipped a beat, the stylus had leaped to the top of the paper. I raced to the helm and leaned on it with all my weight while my eyes tried to perceive the darkness around me. At last, I saw the rock rising somberly out of the sea, safely to starboard. I cannot say how far away it was, since it is difficult to estimate in the darkness. But one thing is certain, even if it does nothing else, the sounding apparatus has already justified its existence. It is 0420 hours, and we are in deep water again. Serenity is restored aboard Manareva as I watch the rock recede in the night. Wednesday, September 19th. I established contact with RTL at 1000 hours and with Tintin at 1100. I promised to send regular radio telegrams to Tintin for the sake of their young readers and, once I reach port in Australia, to send photographs. What I had to do was to prepare a broadcast for radio listeners and then, one hour later, transmit the same news but this time in language intelligible to children. It's not an easy job, but I take pleasure in sharing with other people what I am experiencing and what I am seeing on the ocean. I heard this morning that Penduic 6 is within sight of the Canary Islands. Great Britain is still trailing her, but now at a distance of 100 miles. I was in contact with 33 export at 1400 hours, then I spent the rest of the afternoon putting things in order in the aft compartment. I slept like a log for two hours between six and eight o'clock in anticipation of staying awake most of the night because we were approaching Cape Bojador on the northwest coast of Africa. I will have to keep an eye on the weather maps, but I am very tired. I haven't slept more than a few hours for the past three nights. Thursday, September 20th. At three o'clock this morning, I was almost asleep on my feet. 
Finally, at 6.30, I was able to get three hours of rest. During the morning, I altered the halyards and lifts to keep the steel cables from fraying. The Atlantic seems crowded today. I passed a fleet of fishing boats going in the opposite direction, and following the same course, Salaroman out of Hueleva. An hour later, we encountered Ever Reliance, a cargo ship whose name, for some reason, is repeated in Chinese characters. This afternoon, I hooked up the shortwave radio receiver and time signal. For days, I have been trying to summon up enough courage to undertake the intricate wiring job that this involves. I was not able to establish radio contact with 33 Export. This evening, I was surprised to hear myself singing out loud for the first time this trip. This is my twelfth day at sea, and I am at this moment subjected to the full magic of a tropic night as I linger at the helm, feeling the time slip by. It has been a rather long day, much of it spent watching the trawlers working the continental shelf. The three hours of sleep that I snatched this morning are standing me in good stead. I am able somehow to keep my eyes open and my mind reasonably alert, despite the fact that I will soon have been on watch for 72 hours. The watch is necessary, of course, because of the rather peculiar way that I charted my course between the Canary Islands and the Moroccan coast, so that, later, I can cut the distance along Rio de Oro and Mauritania. I am now in more or less regular contact with 33 Export, thanks to Dominic Gillet's efforts. Dominic arranged the contact with Sonley Radio, the wireless service for ships at sea, in order to tear me from my splendid isolation. With the news of the Whitbread race coming in regularly, I now feel that I have plenty of company in the South Atlantic. My racing instinct nudges me daily, and I make a habit of evaluating the chances of each boat on the basis of how far ahead or how far behind each one is in relation to the others. I have just taken a reading on the depth sounder, 1,078 metres. There are fishing boats everywhere around here. Friday, September 21st. Villa Cineros is nearby, according to the radio, and I have just sighted a mail plane. I have been trying unsuccessfully to pick up a weather report from Port Etienne, called Nuadibu nowadays, in Mauritania. One day follows another, and they are all alike. Early in the afternoon, under lowering skies, I cross the Tropic of Cancer. The trade winds are blowing stronger. Handling the telescopic booms has now become a matter of routine, and it seems to me that I am making up some of the time I lost earlier. On the opposite tack, World Victoria, a tanker then, several freighters. My watch goes on. Saturday, September 22nd. There are a number of flying fish on deck this morning, the making of a small banquet. Near noon, the wind suddenly shifted to the east. The water here is alive with fish and birds are wheeling overhead. Is there something special about this spot? I am at the end of my second week, and I have drawn up a balance sheet. I confess that I knew beforehand that the results would be positive, and I was not disappointed. 1,335 miles. We are right on track. 33 Export is now only 8 miles ahead of Manoreva. I also picked up Adventure this morning, as well as several other boats, and chatted with them for a while. I have noted their positions in my log. Sunday, September 23rd. Today the sea is wearing her Sunday best of indigo under a sun which cuts through the clouds accompanying the trade winds, the phosphorescent blue of the tropic seas, as they say. A squadron of joyous flying fish accompanies Manoreva as she glides through the water at her customary nine knots. I'm celebrating Sunday by relaxing. There were a few chores, of course, which I performed after spending time in an attentive reading of Sir Francis Chichester's account of his voyage. Now, on the first leg of my voyage, it seems to me that it's essential to read such things in order to be able to sense, beyond the words themselves, the day-to-day -day reality. This morning's weather report from Dakar was encouraging, and the forecast is very favourable. 
I spent some time trying on the basis of the information I have to determine the general positions of the participants in the Whitbread. Last night, the BBC and the ORTF gave Penduik 6 first place and 33 exports second. Then, behind them, come Critter, Koala F3 and Gear. It gives me a strange feeling to watch the dots representing these boats progress across my map, and I remind myself that the dots are the sum of the work and the will of other men. Monday, September 24th. I managed to stay awake all night, thanks to the bright stars and the moonlight. Also, it's less hot at night than during the day. I had some good radio contacts during the day, the weather report from Dakar, a broadcast from Paris, a conversation with 33 Export and so forth. 33 Export is sailing squarely through the Cape Verde archipelago and is now a few gusts of wind into the islands. At the moment, we are at the same latitude and we are both suffering through the same heat. Aboard Manareva, it is 99 Fahrenheit in the shade. There is lots of news from Radio Dakar, weather reports, commentaries on the Whitbread race, etc. Since my radio break in the morning is not long enough for everything, I also now have a radio break in the afternoon. These radio contacts have gradually become pivotal points around which my day revolves, along with the dawn and the sunset, the rhythm of meals, and of course the sacred hour of noon, when a seaman salutes the sun with his sextant to establish his position. Penduik 6 is now some 400 miles south of the islands. Before nightfall, I ran up the mizzen and the mainsail, brought in a jenica and got a spinnaker ready, all of which constitutes the evening toilette on Manareva and makes her more manoeuvrable in case of unexpected bad weather. Then I took up my post next to the radio, listening for the latest news of the race from the BBC. Tuesday, September 25th. During the night, there was lightning on the horizon, probably announcing a tropical front, and, behind that front, the equatorial calm of the doldrums, an area where thick clouds and heavy rains abound. Early in the afternoon, I heard that 33 Export had gained 30 miles on me, and Critter, I talked with them this morning, 20 miles. I had better start shaping up. I hoisted my staysail and we took off. At midnight, a school of dolphins came alongside to play. Wednesday, September 26th. This is my 18th day at sea, and I am exactly midway between the Cape Verde Islands and the equator. Between the Canaries and the Cape Verde Islands, I relaxed and took it easy. The boat handled herself and I took long naps between my daily chores. I was able to do this because I am now out of the shipping lanes used by freighters, trawlers and cruising vessels. Once I passed Dakar, I was alone on the ocean and able to get several good nights of sleep. I now feel in tip-top shape and I think I've recovered completely from the accumulated fatigue of preparing for the journey. I am still reading Chichester. I'm about to enter that stretch of absolute calm alternating with violent squalls known to mariners as the pot noir or doldrums. It is a name that evokes the memory of great sailing ships, becalmed for weeks on end, their sails hanging limp from the masts, and then leaping ahead under the impulse of a sudden apocalyptic blow strong enough to rip the clothes from a man's back and wet enough to pass for a waterfall rather than rain. The area is about 300 miles wide, running from west to east, beginning at 5 degrees north and widening as it nears the African coast at 20 degrees west. Normally, trade winds from the northeast carry boats from the Canary Islands to this area, which is the first difficult stretch of navigation to be encountered. Then, the trade winds are normally from the southeast. At that point, a boat sails as close into the wind as possible, while making sure to avoid the high-pressure area of the South Atlantic, where the wind is also usually remarkable for its absence. From there, 
there are two possible strategies. Either give the high pressure area as wide a berth as possible by going far to the west and compensating for this extra distance by going far enough south to reach the strong winds of the Roaring Forties, or sail directly into the southeast trade wind and skirt around the high on the east side. In the latter case, you run the risk of several days of total calm, which are compensated for, to some extent, by the glorious sun in this high pressure area. In any case, for the moment the sky ahead of Manareva is dark with clouds, and they soon appear alongside as well. There is no doubt that I am heading into the doldrums. The humidity is stifling, and the wind is slacking. We are in the first squall. It has been followed by a dead calm. Squall follows squall, and the black clouds erupt into torrents. Then the sea is absolutely flat for a while, until we are hit with sudden violent gusts. These unpredictable changes naturally require that I remain at the helm, and I am constantly tacking to keep in the right direction in the shifting wind. There's no doubt that I'm going to my equatorial crossing this time. At sunset, the sky is the colour of ink. My work at the helm is now less demanding. Sunset and sunrise are the only moments of relief from the long, hot days. I yearn for a spell of cool air and a few hours of relaxation. My friendly dolphins are with me now, cutting like torpedoes through the swell. There are thousands of insects, flies, butterflies, dragonflies, no doubt blown here from the African coast. Thursday, September 27th. Throughout the night, there were squalls on the horizon and stars overhead. In the morning, several heavy rains, one of which drenched both the cabin and the captain. By evening, the wind was from the south and the clouds were white, like great balls of diaphanous cotton scattered in well-ordered ranks. The danger zone was behind us, and the South Atlantic lay before Manareva's bow. I had excellent radio contact with RTL yesterday at noon, and I was able to give a good account of myself. In the second week, we covered almost 1,400 miles, which means that we've made up for most of the low average of the first few days. Manareva and I are now well within Chichester's record. In fact, we have four days on his itinerary, which is particularly encouraging, for Chichester had good strong winds from the very beginning, and he was able to move quite fast. In my broadcast, I tried to convey something of the poetry of this passage through the magnificent trade wind weather, talking about the cumulus clouds in their neat rows, the deep water pulsing with life, the flashes of colour as a flying fish leap from the sea. I also told the audience about an incident that occurred last night aboard Critter, an incident that could easily have had a tragic ending. During a manoeuvre, the spinnaker sheet lashed out of control, knocking one of the crew overboard, Fortunately, he was able to grab hold of the sheet as he went over. It was a very dark night, and it was only by luck that his shipmates saw him after he had been towed through the water for several endless minutes. There is something to learn from this accident. The crewman obviously was not wearing his safety harness. That sometimes happens. A sudden squall comes up and you must rush up on deck before things get out of hand. You're not willing to take the time, or you can't take the time, to buckle yourself in. The elements simply do not wait for a man to do what he is supposed to do and that is how accidents happen. Even so, the experience aboard Critter is in the nature of a warning. Everyone needs such warnings from time to time, and I more than most people. Finally, I talked about my course, and we exchanged various bits of news. I am now in daily contact with a half-dozen sailing vessels moving like a convoy. According to my calculations, these are their actual positions. Shortly, Penduic 6 will be in the lead by a comfortable margin, followed by a Mexican entry, Sayula, which is almost neck and neck with Great Britain. Then come Critter, 33 Export, 
and Manureva are positions at any given time depending on whether I move up on them or they pull ahead of me. Obviously, the range of the naked eye from a boat like mine is probably no more than five miles, and so I cannot see any of my friends. I'm so involved in the race that I almost wrote my competitors. I'll therefore have to wait for my radio breaks to know who's gaining on whom and who is where. During my radio contact with RTL, I sent various personal messages, news to my family, a request that the Maritime Radio Company, CRM, send me, via Senli Radio, copies of the Pretoria weather forecasts and areas covered by the different bulletins, and so forth. My contact at the other end was not so sure he understood what I wanted. I can't blame him, and he said that he would send CRM a copy of the tape, so that I'd be sure of getting what I asked for. We may use sails the way our grandfathers did, but we still make sure that we take advantage of the technical skills of our own time. Thus far, all the news is good. The latest charts have arrived from London and will be turned over to my family to be delivered to me in Sydney. My films are practically all sold and money is trickling in. The more miles of ocean we cover, the tighter seem the bonds that bind us to our friends. My daily radio contacts with the other boats have had a very positive effect on my morale. I may be a hermit by inclination, but I do like to know that there is something around me other than sea. Friday, September 28th. There was a small but troublesome squall during the night. At 0800 hours, I discovered that Manareva was heading north and was not having an easy time against the squalls that seemed to have come from every direction. Contrary to what I believed, I was obviously not out of the doldrums, or perhaps I'm in a second phase of it. I'm keeping an ear on the frequencies that will put me in contact with Grand Louis and perhaps with Penduic 6. My position now is 5 degrees 15 minutes north, 21 degrees 40 minutes west. I spent the entire afternoon at the helm in a disagreeable little drizzle. There is a solid swell from the south, a sign of wind in the distance. The night consoled me for the afternoon, lightning in the distance, but stars overhead. Saturday, September 29th. The night passed slowly and I made entries in the log, chiefly came about and jibed. The sky was grey at dawn and remained grey throughout the forenoon. The squalls never stopped. My position is 4 degrees 12 minutes north. There was another squall during the afternoon. A slice of life from land. I talked to my parents at 2100 hours. Looking back on my third week at sea, I have every reason to be pleased. This week's 1,211 miles added to the first two weeks total 3,394 miles since leaving San Malo. Today's entry in the log ends with these words. God willing, I'll continue to do as well in the weeks to come. This morning, I heard that Penduic 6 had crossed the equator. Critter is next. She's now at 2 degrees 22 minutes north and 33 export 2 degrees 31 minutes north, while Gia, 5 degrees 30 minutes north, has just emerged from calm weather. The next week was spent following the good old day-to-day -day routine of any sailor at sea. I was in radio contact with RTL several times, but was unable to make any decent tapes because the sound kept fading in and out. I yelled myself hoarse trying to give an intelligible account of what had happened aboard, a description of the damp, sombre doldrums, the squalls, my hands constantly so wet that calluses fell off, the mildewed bread that I had to dry out in the sun and then cut with a hacksaw because it was so hard that an ordinary knife couldn't get through it. The Whitbread race is as exciting as ever, and I'm keeping busy transcribing the respective positions of the participants in my radio log. I would not be doing badly at all if I were in the race. Naturally, everyone is trying as hard as he can, but it seemed that the tide had definitely turned in favour of Penduic 6, until the news came that the large catch had lost her mast only 1,800 miles from the finish line, and would have to put into Rio. 
Aside from the possibility of injuries, losing a mast is a very serious business. A sudden ripping apart of stays, spars, sails and rigging. On a large sailing vessel, the aluminum mast is over 70 feet high and weighs nearly a ton. When it goes, it and its rigging and its thousands of square feet of sail fall across the deck where the crew is trying to manoeuvre. A dismasting occurs usually when there is a heavy blow and when the boat is sailing upwind. And, since all racing boats everywhere are always pushing to the maximum degree, it sometimes happens that one of the links of the chain that constitutes a sailing vessel breaks. Then we have a catastrophe. A dismasting, no doubt, is the part of the law of the sea having to do with imponderables and with an element of chance. Even so, I hope that no one was hurt. We're all in the same boat, in a sense, and I feel a very personal involvement in the dismasting of Penduic 6. I've had a few small problems of my own, because like everyone else, I feel a strong temptation to push Manareva as hard as possible in search of optimum performance. One morning, I was struggling with a large foresail that gives me 10 or 12 knots of speed. Suddenly, the rigging broke, and there I was trying to handle 236 square feet of sail suddenly gone crazy. An interesting game. It was a sign, and a sign that could not be mistaken. When a wire rope which has been load tested at one and a half tons, breaks in a gale, it means that you are well advised to reduce your speed. It is a little wink from a guardian angel. I understand it as such and reduced sail accordingly. The following day, I was able to get news over the radio about Eric Tabley's mast. For reasons unknown, the mast had simply folded over. The shrouds were cut and the mast and sails went overboard. Albert Coudave at Espanavana in France was now undertaking the impossible, he had promised to have a new mast ready in five days. It would be flown to Rio to be installed on Penduic 6. I took down several telegrams from 33 Export to Relay by way of Senli. There's no doubt that my elaborate radio equipment is justifying its existence. Of course, I am delighted to be able to reach France and even Great Britain. The next day, Sonli confirmed receipt of the messages and passed on a telegram from Penduic 6. No one hurt and morale high. My week on the radio ended with a very clear communication with Clamancy, France, where my whole family was waiting. My brother Jeff began giving me all the news. A few excerpts will give an idea of the high technical level of our exchanges. George says to tell you that the needles should be in the racks above the chart table. And don't worry about the bottles of Evian and the paint. They'll be in Sydney when you get there. About the oil, it should be at about 45 and don't let it go below 20. Their cetometer should read 1250 at the end of the charge, so you're going to have to recharge the batteries when it goes down to 1200. Do it as soon as possible because you're using your radio a lot and let it charge for four or five hours at a time. I didn't know quite how to explain that my acetometer was made in Japan and that it had colors instead of numbers. I'm doing okay with the fuel, I assured Jeff. My generator is using only about a quarter and a half per hour and I have about 106 gallons on hand. I'd kept careful notes in my log of how much fuel the generator was using over a given period of time. We then talked about Penduic 6 mishap, and Jeff confirmed what I had heard, that Albert Coudave expected to have the new mast ready the following Tuesday. Victor Tonnerre, meanwhile, was making a new mainsail, a fourth staysail, and a staysail. If they can do it, they'll deserve the gratitude of everyone concerned. Everything was going well at home, and everyone was there for vacation. My parents and my nephew, Alexander, who, according to Pierrette, makes up every morning shouting, Good luck, Cola! Ask Albert Coudave about modifying the binding on the mainmast, I told Jeff. The accident aboard Penduic 6 had made me think about reinforcing the masts by re-rigging the extra shrouds. 
I was thinking especially about the strain on the mast in case of very strong trailing winds, but I wanted Albert's opinion before I decided anything. The rest of the conversation was about domestic matters, and it ended with the usual strings of how are yous and we miss yous. Even those hackneyed formulas are sweet to the ear of a man who is alone. Bon voyage, Jeff concluded. We're all thinking of you, and we all send our love so long. These gusts of warmth and affection, it seemed to me, rose up and joined together above the land and the water, and made me think of the vast birds of the sea that the poets write about. I was touched and comforted, and I was in good humour when I sat down to compute my progress for the fourth week, 1,201 miles between meridian points. Unless I have made a mistake somewhere, my average speed has risen to seven knots for an average of 164 miles a day. I'm still keeping track of the amount of fuel that my generator is using. The generator has operated a total of 70 hours since I left San Marlo and has used 28 gallons of the gas oil mixture. Therefore, I have about 79 gallons left, which is to say 100 days use if I use the generator an average of two hours a day. Since there have been so few problems lately, I've managed to get two successive nights of good sleep. These are the first since setting sail. But the Alan Collar who is buried in my subconscious mind apparently does not like such innovations. I woke up once at 0300 thinking I'd heard someone calling me by name. I've also had time for some enjoyable reading. Documents on the Sydney-bound Clippers, Patriarch, Cutty Sark, Simba, Samuel Plimsoll, Rodney, and a couple of enjoyable days spent in the literary company of Captain Voss. After that, I turned to Strange Stories of the Sea for a bit of relaxation, but was disappointed. I switched to Olivier Sternverin, and this time I was not at all disappointed. I'm also trying to vary my pleasures. For example, I'm spending a good deal of time preparing worthwhile meals. On occasion, I even verge on the exotic by preparing Chinese food. I've begun to dig into my canned goods, and I've even opened a box of ravioli, a sure sign that I've been at sea for a while. Wednesday, I had to break open a dozen eggs to find three good ones. I was about to forget the big day. On Monday, October the 1st, at 1721 hours, I crossed the equator at 24 degrees, 34 minutes west. Somehow, although I studied the horizon carefully, I was not able to find any evidence of that lovely black line that was nonetheless shown on all the big coloured globes when I was a schoolboy. I half expected Neptune to rise from the depths, triton in hand, and come aboard to observe the appropriate formalities of the crossing. Perhaps he has grown accustomed to me. After all, this is the sixth time I have crossed the line. I must say that I am pleased with the way things are going. The five tall ships that, to my knowledge, reached Sydney in the record time of 72 days have all taken between 21 and 26 days to reach the equator. It took Chichester 26 days. My time was 22 and a half days. To tell the truth, things have not always gone smoothly. There have been days of slack wind when we crept along at a few knots and even that only by pushing as hard as we could. There have been little malfunctions that have taken time and trouble. My list of minor repairs to be taken care of at Sydney is beginning to grow. Change the halyards on the jib and mizzens. Think about using two lateral shrouds and talk to Albert about the mast. Install safety hanks on the jib. Change the hanks on the staysail. Check in Sydney to see about the halyards. There is nothing serious on the list and, after all, the important thing is to keep nibbling away at the miles. Everything else is a detail. The relative calm during this past week gave me time to think about myself and, as it happens, every time I am at sea, a series of questions has been whirling around in my head, looking for answers. This record-setting trek, for instance, this need to go faster in order to achieve a passing and fragile victory, what does it amount to? Now, 
Alone at the equator, I am searching my mind, not only to find answers, but also to make certain that I am not trying to evade the real questions. Of course, I do not expect a sudden illumination of my deepest motivations in one day of reflection or in one week, certainly not at the very moment I succeeded in formulating a question. I've already spent a number of years questioning the sea, and I count myself lucky if, in all those thousands of miles, I have enjoyed a few passing moments of understanding. I have known the joy of rising above what I thought were my own limits. But why do some people love battle and others prefer retreat? Why do some prefer participation with others, while some can be content only when they have imposed their own will on others? Why do some people leave and others stay in order to find themselves? We say with a smile that we want to prove ourselves to have our chance, but are we actually motivated by wounded pride? Pride certainly has a lot to do with it. There is occasion for great pride when we experience a victory that we have earned for ourselves with our own hands. But then, aren't we forgetting that we are merely the standard bearers of all those who have given the best of themselves at every step of the way in preparing the boat for the journey? There are many elements that make up a victory, and the human element is not the dominant one. In the final analysis, I know very well that a victory against the sea is not won through a struggle. It is given by default, as it were, and the true master of the situation remains, as always, the sea itself. The world of sailing is so vast that there is room in it for everyone and everything. You have, on the one hand, the pure, austere discipline of the solitary sailor at sea, and on the other, you have the Sunday sailor, his little craft riding gently at anchor in the snug harbour of a sheltered bay. What do these two have in common except the basic rhythms of that art? Who would dare attempt to establish a hierarchy of sailing? Who can say that the man alone in his dinghy on a quiet lake gathers less wealth from his boat, or finds fewer ways of expressing himself than the crewman working shoulder to shoulder in the virile camaraderie of a transoceanic race? The very idea of being better should be alien to the sailor, as alien as the idea of a piano virtuoso that he should be the sole and unique interpreter of this or that composer. In both cases, it is a matter of serving something that is greater than the individual, of being one interpreter of music or, as I am perhaps, one interpreter of the harmony of the seas. To put it more simply, perhaps we should think not of a certain lifestyle, of a certain mode of existence, not of being the best, but of doing our best. No doubt, doing our best implies a desire to excel, but more than that, it also implies a desire to better ourselves. In any case, it should mean that within myself, I want to be a better Alain Collard. At the risk of sounding professorial again, I must go on to say that I am more concerned with exploring the meaning of myself than I am with exploring the meaning of sailing. But in order to do that, I realize that I must perceive myself, observe myself in action, that is, in a situation of self-betterment. On the sea and through the sea, I've discovered that I have a love of discovery, regardless of where it may lead. For that reason, I believe that in their intensity, in their human context, preparations for such undertakings as the transatlantic race or rounding Cape Horn are extremely effective in bringing one to a proper perception of oneself as a developing person. The links of camaraderie and friendship that are forged in the common tension of such preparations make us see ourselves as we are, deep within ourselves, and the technical and technological skills that are exhibited lead us to appreciate the homogeneity of humanity and at the same time 
the necessity for diversity of skills and talents. My greatest pleasure is in learning. For me, it is the richest reward. I have always hated being a spectator, even in the broadest meaning of that term. I don't like to watch football games because I feel left out, unless one of the players is a friend with whom I can identify as he runs down the field with the ball. For this reason, I decided to learn to use a movie camera for my Cape Horn adventure. I'm trying to learn as much as I can about techniques that are, to me, quite new. I've already learned enough to know that, when I get back to shore, I will be interested in film editing, in methods of sound recording and in all other aspects of that art of which I have been so long in ignorance. If, one day, I should discover that sailing has become nothing more than a mere repetition of techniques that I have learned, then I will certainly give up sailing. But in my heart, I know that there will never come a day when the sea does not have something to teach me. To put it in more concrete terms, let me take the example of Sir Francis Chichester. I hope to beat Chichester's record. Now, that is an honourable aim. At the same time, it must be said that my attempt is, above all, an act of homage to the man himself. It is Chichester who opened the road for those who come after him. He is the one who, by daring to confront the three capes alone on the clipper route, demonstrated that it was possible to do so. Since then, techniques have changed and equipment has been improved. My boat is larger and faster than his and is outfitted differently. All these things may mean that I will break his record, but they also mean that even if I succeed, I will never equal his performance. What I want, by giving it my very best shot, is to be worthy of the example set by Sir Francis, to extend his achievement in time and thereby to engage in a race of my own against the shadow of the great clipper ships. Things never stand still, it is part of human nature to go from one absorbing thing to the next, just as waves are in constant action and follow one another unceasingly. I have only one fear, that I will become bogged down or trapped in one job or one role. Obviously, I have no intention of renouncing the ecstatic experience of being the first to cross a finish line. That is a joy so intense and profound that it engulfs a man and leaves him weak and exhausted. I have spent months, even years, before Newport, thinking and working for absolutely nothing except the moment that I would cross that line. When it happened, I was swept into seventh heaven, until the moment passed with a surprising rapidity. But for a long time after Newport, I was at peace with myself. I was calm, relaxed. Happiness may well consist of establishing a rare harmony between what we are and what we do. But since we are constantly changing, we must also be ready always to look for another peak to scale, another task to undertake. For me, that peak, that task, has the craggy form of a sombre, forbidding rock with a name that resounds like a sail luffing in the breeze. Cape Horn. It is no doubt an ambitious undertaking, a very high and difficult step for me to contemplate. But I have not the slightest doubt that, once I have taken that step, it will prove to be merely a step to something else. It does no good to reach a goal unless we leave something of ourselves along the way. Well, that's the end of today's chapter. and We're going to continue with the story tomorrow. Now, if you haven't already, consider please going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner. You can follow the link in the podcast description. And there we have a growing community of people just like yourself who are interested in sailing, interested in seamanship, and interested to learn more techniques and tips that can help 
their time on their boat be safer and more enjoyable. So at $5 a month, your donation directly contributes to me being able to produce the podcasts and keeps the lights on, keeps the wheels going round. But if you are interested in developing your skills further, then you may be interested to increase your contribution to the next level up, to the mate's level. And there for $20 a month, you get access to the one hour professionally produced seamanship training videos that we do each month which drill down and look at specific aspects of seamanship and safety at sea, get into the nitty gritty of it and uh, share with you information that can make your time at sea both more enjoyable and safer. So if any of that sounds interesting, go along to patreon.com forward slash the mariner or follow the link in the podcast description and become part of the community. But that's all for today. So I hope that wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you are safe and sound. And I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers.